read this morning from Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. Hear the word of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, She is my sister, and she, even she herself said, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, This is the kindness that you should do for me. And every place, wherever we go, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, it shall be as a veil for your eyes before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech, because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. From the opening pages of Scripture to their close, the story of God's redemptive activity is structured by promises made and promises kept. So says Michael Lawrence in his book, The Story of Promise. And as we followed the biblical history from the Garden of Eden now to the life of Abraham, we've kept our eye on the promise of God. It began in Genesis 3 uh, with what we call the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise of a Savior found in the Scriptures, one who would come to destroy the serpent, to triumph over him where Adam had failed. 
And then the waiting begins. Cain kills Abel. Seth is born, but he doesn't defeat Satan and bring the final victory. History continues. Humanity only gets more wicked as time passes. God brings judgment on the earth in the flood. He spares only Noah and his family. And then Noah immediately has his own fall and proves not to be the promised Savior. Noah's sons father the nations, but none of them prove to be the promised seed. Though the promise is now made that this promised one would come through the line of Shem. Then Abraham is called by God, and he is promised that the Savior who will bless the nations will be his offspring, his seed. But Abraham is childless. Sarah, his wife, is barren. And so there is another period of waiting, 25 years of waiting for God to keep his promise. And several times we've seen what appears from a human perspective at least uh, to be major obstacles to the keeping of this promise. Sarah's barren. She can't have children. Her and Abraham are getting old. Abraham at this point is now 100 years old and Sarah is 90. At one, once again, God has reaffirmed his promise to Abraham saying that Sarah will indeed have a son. She will conceive and, and that the son will be born will be the offspring of Abraham and Sarah together. And now we come to chapter 20 and once again the promise appears to be in jeopardy. Can God preserve the promise in spite of the sinfulness of men? That's the real question that is addressed here in our text this morning. And the answer is a resounding yes. God always keeps his promises and nothing can prevent him. Not an aging body, not Abraham's sin, which we'll see this morning, not a pagan king. God always keeps his promises and nothing can prevent him. This chapter can be a little bit difficult to understand because at first glance, we read it and we think to ourselves, could Abraham really make this mistake again? Because if we remember back, he did this same thing in Genesis chapter 12. There was a famine in the land. Abraham took his household and they, they went to Egypt where there was food. And he made the same mistake that he makes here in chapter 20. Abraham is still committing the same sins 25 years later. He's still struggling to trust God 25 years later. I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly encouraging to know that the father of the faithful is still struggling with his faith. To know that I'm not the only one who still wrestles with the same sins over and over again who still struggles in my growth and sanctification, who still wrestles to trust God with everything. And we see that in Abraham, and that encourages me. But this chapter isn't really about Abraham. It's about God. There are four figures in this narrative that play a role, Abraham, Sarah, Abimelech, and God. 
God is obviously the most important figure of the four. But what I want to do is to look at each one of those four and the role they play in this episode and the events that are related here and see what we can learn of the goodness and the faithfulness of God and the surety of his promises through this history. But we'll start with Abraham, since that's where our text starts. It says in verse 1, And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now, we're not told why Abraham journeyed south at this time. In chapter 12, uh, it was a famine that drove him to move to the south and to go to Egypt. But here, uh, we don't know why. Now, Gerar is is not in Egypt. It's in what will later become uh, the land of Israel. Uh, It's actually on the border uh, between uh, what will be the territory of Judah and the territory of Simeon. Uh, So it's firmly within uh, the territory of the promised land, which had been given to Abraham. So he's not removed himself from the promised land as he did in chapter 12. But we don't know why uh, he left Egypt. Hebron and traveled south to Griar. Now, it's possible uh, that Abraham had business there. He was a wealthy uh, man who had flocks and herds. Perhaps he was going to Griar to take some uh, flocks to market. Griar sat uh, on a trade route between Egypt and the northern part of the Mediterranean. Uh, And so it would make sense that he might travel there and stay for a period of time as he conducts his business. But when he gets there, Abraham lies. He tells the same lie that he had told uh, in Egypt 25 years earlier in verse 2. Now, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, there is some truth in this, right? We we see this uh, in verse 12. She is his half-sister, right? It says in verse 12, indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So there's a half-truth. She is his half-sister, but he omitted part of the truth, the part that that mattered, that she is his wife. As my dad used to say, part of the truth is all of the lie. Abraham omitted a very important part of the truth. And by telling Abimelech only part of the truth, she's my sister, and omitting the fact that she was his wife, His intention was obviously to deceive. This was a lie. And Abimelech, along with us, wants to know why. Why did Abraham lie to him? And so he asks Abraham in verse 10, Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? What were you thinking, Abraham? Why tell this lie? And here's Abraham's answer in verse 11. And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely... The fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. So Abraham's fear was that the people of this city don't know God. They don't worship God. They won't act righteously. They won't obey his moral law. They will murder him in order to take his wife. Now, in chapter 12, when he committed this sin originally, Abraham had told Sarah that because she was so beautiful, He feared that they would kill him in order to take her. Now, that was when she was 65 years old. Now she's 90, and he still has that same fear. Sarah must have been uncommonly beautiful. I mean, that's pretty amazing. But even so, Abraham has been down this road before. 
He's told this lie before. He failed to trust God to protect him. And he saw that ultimately God did protect him, did preserve his marriage in spite of his own failings. But here he falls into the same pattern of sin again. He gives in to his fear. He fails to trust in God's protection. And he perpetrates this lie And he tells us in verse 13 that it wasn't just a a spur-of-the-moment thing. Like he didn't just react in the moment. This fear came on him, and so he just told this lie. This was premeditated. He had thought this through ahead of time. He says in verse 13, And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house 25 years ago, that I said to her, This is your kindness that you should do for me in every place wherever we go. Say of me, he is my brother. So this is a lie that he had premeditated 25 years ago and is still following through on. And after the first episode of this lie in chapter 12, which nearly saw his wife taken by another man, you would have thought he would have learned his lesson, but he didn't. He still gave in to the same fear. He still fell into the same pattern of sin. And how often do we do the same? We fall into the same patterns of sin over and over again that we have wrestled with. We give in to the same fears. We fail to trust God to keep his promises to us. And we suffer the same consequences for our sins. Consequences that we've suffered before and have even prayed to God to deliver us from. And then we fall right back into them again. Lies are especially difficult in this way because... Once you tell one lie, then you have to keep lying to cover up the original lie, and it just becomes more and more difficult the digger, the deeper you dig uh, with these lies uh, to come clean. It's more difficult to face the truth, and it's more humbling because you've told more and more lies. And, and so once again, Abraham finds himself in this situation. The promise appears to be in jeopardy because of his sin. This king now takes Sarah into his household for himself. Abraham's wife, through whom the promised son is to be born, is now in another man's household. John Calvin points out, after considering all the ways in which Abraham sinned, his lie, his giving in to fear, his deception... He says, if we thoroughly weigh all these things, he sinned chiefly through unbelief by attributing less than he ought to to the providence of God. Whence also we are admonished how dangerous a thing it is to trust our own counsels. Abraham put the promise in jeopardy by his sin. Had Sarah become the wife of another man, had Abimelech gone into her, he would have had no one but himself to blame for the wreck he would have made of his marriage and of his life and of the surety of the promise. But what about Sarah? What is her role in all of this? Well, first, she goes along with Abraham's lie. More than that, she participates in it. Abimelech said in verse 5, Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And she, even she herself, said, He is my brother. So she tells the lie along with Abraham. And, you know, it's one thing for a wife to submit to her husband in the Lord. This wasn't in the Lord. This was a lie. Isaiah says that God is the God of truth. 
Deuteronomy says he is a rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth, without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Titus says that he is the God who cannot lie. So this half-truth, which was all of the lie, this was not of God. Sarah's uh, complicit in this lie with Abraham. She should not have taken part in it, especially the second time. Ephesians tells us, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This doesn't mean that you knowingly commit sin just because your husband tells you to. The appropriate response of a godly wife in a situation like this would be to humbly remind her husband this would be a sin. We shouldn't do this. I cannot participate in this. And exhort her husband, encourage him to godliness and truthfulness rather than to help him sin. And when Abimelech gives her back to Abraham, he speaks to Sarah in verse 16. And he says, then he said to Sarah, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, it shall be a veil for your eyes before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus, she was rebuked. This is a difficult verse. Commentators agree that the Hebrew here is somewhat obscure and difficult to translate and understand. But the gist of it, uh, it's interesting that Abimelech tells her, I've given your brother a thousand. He doesn't say, I've given your husband. He says, I've given your brother. He obviously believed the truth now that it's been exposed. But by saying it in that way, he, he is subtly rebuking them for their lie. He says, I've given your brother this silver. He's paid a handsome price to him, a thousand pieces of silver. Later in Scripture, we'll see that a slave was accounted uh, the worth of 30 pieces of silver. So by giving a thousand, Abimelech is showing uh, she is his wife. She's not a slave girl. She's not a harlot of some kind. Her worth is that of a wife. And then he says that it will be to the covering of the eyes. And, and by that, he means that she should trust herself to her husband, God's prophet. No need for deception here. He is to be her rightful covering. And she had thrown off that covering by participating in this lie. Thus, she was rebuked, the text tells us. The mother of the promised seed, the mother of the faithful, is corrected by a heathen king who has more integrity than Abraham and Sarah do. John Calvin again said that the Lord had suffered Sarah to be reproved by a heathen king that he might the more deeply affect her with a sense of shame. Which brings us to Abimelech's role in all of this. Abimelech is the name that is given to the kings of the Philistines. From the time of Abraham through the time of David, all the Philistine kings are called Abimelech. So it's sort of like the Egyptians calling their king Pharaoh. It's not really a name, it's a title. It means my father, the king. And so Abimelech is this Philistine king ruling in the city of Gerar on this trade route. And Abraham now moves into his territory, brings his flocks and his herds. He he dwells there in the city 
of Gerar. And he introduces Sarah, his wife, as his sister, saying, she is my sister, in verse 2. Now, as we've already said, Sarah must have been uncommonly beautiful, especially considering her age at this point. So the king takes her for himself. She's an unwed woman. Her husband is rich, or her brother is rich. Seems like a good marriage to enter into. Ally myself with this guy. She's a, she's a beautiful woman. So he takes her for himself. But then God comes and speaks to him in a dream. And I don't want us to rush over that. God speaks to this man in a dream. This is exceedingly rare. Exceedingly rare. Pharaoh will have a dream that God sends him that has meaning, but it doesn't say that God spoke to Pharaoh in the dream, just that he gave Pharaoh a dream, and then Joseph has to interpret it. The same thing with Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. He has a dream, but it doesn't say God spoke to him in the dream. Jacob has a dream at one point in which an angel speaks to him, but there are only two other times in the entire Old Testament where it says God spoke to someone in a dream. One of those is in Genesis chapter 31 when God speaks to Laban, Jacob's father-in-law. And the other one is in 1 Kings when God speaks to Solomon in a dream. In fact, in Numbers, it says this, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. For God to speak to this king of the Philistines in a dream is exceedingly rare. The word of the Lord came to a Philistine king. Verse 3, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. This is a dire warning. You're a dead man because you've taken another man's wife. That's a sin, a grave sin. It's adultery. You've taken this man's wife. You're going to face judgment from the Lord. Abimelech responds to God and pleads his innocence, both in his actions and in his motivations. Verses 4 and 5, But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister, and she, even she herself said, he is my brother, in the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. In essence, what he says is, I was deceived. If I had known she was another man's wife, I wouldn't have done this. I didn't do this thinking she was another man's wife. I did this thinking she was an unwed woman. They deceived me. This heathen king claims to have pure motives. So how does God respond to this? Well, in verse 6, God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. Wow. God agrees with Abimelech. Your heart was pure. You did not have sinful motives in your heart when you did this thing. That's an amazing statement from God. This is the God who sees, as Hagar had called him, the God who sees the heart, the, the one who judges 
rightly, who knows the wicked from the righteous, as we saw last week in his judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says that this heathen king of the Philistines had no sin in his heart when he took Sarah. It wasn't an abuse of power. It wasn't lust. It wasn't uh, knowingly a committing of adultery just because he could. He was innocent in the matter. That's amazing. Furthermore, I would have you take note of Abimelech's character and at least two other details. Notice that he addresses God as Adonai, that is, the sovereign one, acknowledging God's authority even over himself as king. This displays his humility and a keen spiritual insight. Second, notice the first question Abimelech asks God in his response in verse 4. Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? As the king goes, so goes the nation. We've discussed this before in our discussion of covenants in previous chapters. Abimelech is very aware of his position and his role as king over his people. He knows that should the Lord judge him for this sin and slay him, that his people would suffer as well. And so he expresses concern, not just for his own life, but for those who are under his care and authority. This truly is a man of integrity and good character. And he's absolutely correct in his thinking because God says in verse 7, Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, Know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So God and Abimelech are agreed in this. As goes the king, so goes the nation. Now, Abimelech knows the truth at this point. He knows the relationship between Sarah and Abraham. He's faced with dire consequences. The Lord has pronounced judgment against him and his kingdom if he does not obey God had said in verse 3, you are a dead man because you've taken another man's wife. But now he adds the condition, you're a dead man if you don't restore her. There's an opportunity here for Abimelech to obey, an opportunity for him to repent. And if he refused, then he would suffer the wrath and judgment of God because of his sin. A sure as it had been on Sodom and Gomorrah, he would suffer the judgment of God. But Abimelech's response to this divine warning of judgment is obedience. But notice how it begins in verse 8. Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. So the first thing the king does is call, he rises early in the morning, gathers all of his servants together and explains the danger that the kingdom is now in. And they respond with fear. They don't doubt his dream. They don't doubt his conviction that God will indeed judge them and that they are in danger of divine wrath. They experience godly fear. And I say it's godly fear for two reasons. First, they're rightly afraid of God, the divine judge, 
and of his wrath against sin. In his book, Rejoice and Tremble, Pastor Michael Reeves says this, it is right that trembling fear should be the right reaction to the creator. It shows that the holiness of the creator is not a quiet, anemic thing to be received with stained glass voices and simpers. The holiness of the sovereign Lord is tremendous, vivid, and dazzling. Not to fear him would be blind foolishness. Abimelech is no fool. He and his servants fear the Lord. They fear him as the judge of all the earth, as Abraham called him in chapter 18. The second reason I say this is godly fear is because it produces obedience. Just after delivering the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, this is recorded. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. Don't fear. The fear of the Lord is here to keep you from sinning. It's kind of a strange turn of phrase. But the point is, you don't have to ultimately fear the final judgment of God if you fear him rightly as Lord and creator and therefore obey him. And that's just what happens with Abimelech. He and his servants fear the Lord. They are afraid because of the judgment of an almighty God. And so Abimelech obeys. He returns Sarah to Abraham. And there's a great irony here in the story. When Abimelech questions Abraham about this, Abraham gives his excuse, right, in verse 11. Then Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. Abraham thought, there's no fear of the Lord before their eyes. They would not keep God's moral law. They would commit murder and adultery. The irony is that in chapter 18, Abraham had expressed complete confidence in the Lord to judge rightly between the wicked and the righteous, that he believed that God could know the hearts of those who dwelt in Sodom, to know who deserved punishment and who didn't. And in chapter 19, we saw that God was able to do that with even greater discernment than Abraham had asked for. And now, Abraham has displayed his complete inability to accurately judge the heart of another man. He excused his sin because he judged Abimelech to have no fear of God that would prevent him from sinning. And here we see how ultimately wrong Abraham was. On the basis of one dream, one dream, Abimelech and all of his servants display a fear of the Lord that is as wholesome as any we might wish for ourselves. As John Calvin said, an example of such ready obedience is shown us in a heathen king so that we may no more make excuses for our complacency. God appeared to him in a dream, but since he daily cries aloud in our ears by Moses, by the prophets, by the apostles, And finally, by his only begotten son, it were absurd to suppose that so many testimonies should avail less than the vision of a single dream. In other words, Abimelech should be an example to us. On the testimony of one dream, 
He trembled with godly fear and obeyed the voice of God. We have the testimony of the whole of the scriptures ready at hand daily to instruct us in the fear of the Lord and in godly living so that we might please him. How often are we lethargic and complacent in our repentance and our obedience rather than moved by godly fear as we should be to obey the voice of the Lord? Abimelech should be an example to instruct us. He was certainly an example to Abraham and Sarah. He rebukes them both. We've already seen how Sarah was rebuked. But look at the rebuke that Abimelech gives Abraham in verse 9. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. That's a stinging rebuke. You're supposed to be God's prophet, Abraham. I didn't sin against you or give you any occasion to wish me ill. Yet you are responsible for bringing me and my kingdom to the brink of disaster because of a grave sin that you made possible by acting in a way that even heathens know better. Matthew Henry said that this was a serious reproof which Abimelech gave to Abraham. Calvin calls Abimelech a minister to execute divine chastisement on God's servant. He later says that Abimelech was a true herald of that divine judgment which miserable men in vain endeavor to elude. Abraham wrongly judged Abimelech, and God sent Abimelech to rebuke Abraham and to show him the greatness of his own sin. We should also notice that Abimelech obeyed God wholeheartedly. Verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham. He restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. No half measures here. He didn't just return Sarah to Abraham and then ask them to leave his territory, which he would have been justified in doing. No, he restored Sarah to Abraham, along with sheep, oxen, male and female servants, a thousand pieces of silver, and he tells them to live wherever it pleases them within the boundaries of his kingdom. He made generous restitution for a sin that he almost committed in ignorance because of Abraham's deception. No excuses. He just obeyed God, and he did it fully without holding anything back. And that, that's hard to do. I mean, let's just be honest. This would be incredibly hard to do. Abraham had sinned against him. He had lied. He had deceived Abimelech so that the king almost committed adultery and suffered the judgment of God because of it. And then he not only returns Abraham's wife, but he pays him handsomely. That could have really rankled. But I don't think it did. There's no indication in the text that Abimelech was reluctant in any way to do this. The fear of the Lord was so strong in him that yes, he rebuked Abraham and Sarah for their sins 
and for endangering his kingdom by exposing him to sin. But because he truly feared God and dreaded sin, he obeyed wholeheartedly. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to obey. I want to fear the Lord and obey him in that way. I'm not sure that I do, but I want to. My prayer is that the Lord would make us like Abimelech to fear the Lord and to hate sin with such a holy hatred that we are willing to obey to the uttermost with no excuses, not holding anything back, to obey. And as Abraham did, as Abimelech did to Abraham and Sarah, to exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, as it says in Hebrews. So that's it for Abraham, Sarah, and Abimelech. But let's turn our attention now to the character of God in this text. And first, I want us to recognize God's goodness to Abraham in all of this. This could have gone very badly for Abraham. He could have lost his wife. His own life could have been forfeit. The legitimacy of his heir could have been brought into question. Instead, Abraham comes out of this with a blessing, with increased wealth, not due to any goodness of his own, but just because of the goodness of God to him. As God keeps his promise, I will bless you and make your name great. The only reason Abraham receives a material blessing in this instance is because of the sheer goodness and mercy of God to him. He doesn't deserve it. And of far greater worth than the sheep, the oxen, the servants, the silver, through means of a Philistine king, God instructed Abraham in righteousness. He increased in sanctification, learning the fear of the Lord, the hatred of sin, the value of integrity, and his own inadequacy to rightly judge the hearts of others. These are invaluable lessons. Psalm 19 tells us the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. God instructed Abraham in righteousness by means of Abimelech. He showed his goodness and his kindness to Abraham by increasing his sanctification, his righteous living in a way that resulted in, in what? A wounded ego? As Abraham had to humble himself and admit that he had lied? This was the goodness of God to Abraham in a bad situation. And, and 
We could learn from this to recognize the goodness of God to us when our sin is exposed and when we're instructed in righteousness. It's not fun, but it's for our good. In Hebrews, it says, We have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they, that is our human fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's God's goodness to us when he works through whatever means he may use to rebuke us for our sin, to call us to repentance, and to instruct us in righteousness by both word and example. And that was the case here. God was good to Abraham. Secondly, God was gracious to Abimelech. He restrained him from sinning. When Abimelech responded to God and pled his ignorance, God replied in verse 6 and said, God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God kept Abimelech from sinning and committing this great sin. Yes, Abimelech was deceived. He had no sinful motives in his heart when he took Sarah. But the fact that he had not touched her wasn't due to his own righteousness. He was ignorant of her married state. He would have taken her and committed this great sin had God not restrained him. And notice how God restrained him, because this is pretty amazing. God said in verse 3 that Abimelech was a dead man because of the woman he had taken. In verse 6, God says that he withheld Abimelech from sinning. And in verse 7, he says, Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. If you restore her, Abraham will pray for you, and then you will live. Now look down at verse 17. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female servants. Then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So God had closed the wombs of all the women in Abimelech's household so that they couldn't bear children. But of Abimelech, it says, God healed Abimelech so that he wouldn't die. God not only closed the wounds of the women in his household, but he had apparently struck Abimelech with some illness that would have led to death had Abraham not prayed for him. It was only through the intercessory prayer of Abraham, God's man, God's prophet, that this illness was healed. God was gracious to Abimelech. He struck him with an illness that kept him from sinning. He was gracious to warn Abimelech of the danger that he was in, give him an opportunity to repent of it and to obey and provide the means of healing upon his repentance. 
But God works in mysterious ways. I mean, we, we wouldn't usually or immediately attribute an illness to the graciousness of God. We wouldn't look and go, I've gotten ill. This is God being gracious to me. But that's what happened. How often have we experienced God's grace to us in some way that we don't immediately recognize? This only proves that we should, as Paul would later write in the New Testament, be thankful in all things, in all circumstances, because we are not God. We don't know how he might be working through an illness or through some other circumstance to prevent us from sinning, to show his mercy and his grace to us. God was gracious to Abimelech. And finally, God displayed his greatness in preserving his promise. Abraham's sin, Sarah's sin, Abimelech's ignorance, the promise was in jeopardy because of these things. And yet God displayed his greatness in orchestrating all of these things together, not only for the good of Abraham and the good of Abimelech, but for the preserving of his promise. God showed that the sins of men and the actions of kings cannot thwart his plans. God had promised that Abraham would have a son by Sarah, that the child to come would come from both of their bodies and from no other. And this son is to be the son of promise through whom, through his descendants, the promised seed would be born, the Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. Some 2,000 years after this incident, another king would maliciously seek to thwart God's promise by attempting to kill the newly born Messiah. King Herod not only had the power of a king, as Abimelech did, but unlike Abimelech, he did act with sin in his heart. But God's promise cannot be thwarted by the sins of men or the power of earthly kings. King Herod's attempt to kill Christ failed. For God had promised not just that the Messiah would be born, but that he would save his people. And that meant that he must live. He must live a perfect life without sin. And then at the right time that he would be offered up as a substitutionary sacrifice without blemish to take our place, to suffer the punishment that we deserved for our sins and to give us his righteousness in exchange so that we might be saved from the wrath to come. And then three days later, rise from the dead so that we might have new life in him. And in doing so, he defeated Satan. He defeated our sin and he conquered death. He crushed the head of the serpent just as God had promised in Genesis 3. And all of this happened Peter says in his first sermon in the book of Acts, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. According to the promise, he says in verse 39, which promises for all those whom God will call, be they Jew or Gentile. It's the promise that was made in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would triumph where Adam had failed. It's the promise that was made in Genesis 12 that Abraham's seed would bless all the nations of the earth. It's the promise that God preserved here in Genesis 20 and in Matthew 2. 
kings of the earth, whether in ignorance or malice, cannot interfere with the promise of God. Abraham's sin, Sarah's sin, your sin, my sin, cannot interfere with the promise of God. I'll leave you with this quote from Michael Lawrence. When God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. God cannot lie, so his promises never deceive. God is all-powerful, so his promises never fail. Amen. Let's pray.